Hello and welcome to Your Money, Your Mission, the show that helps you maximize your wealth by turning complex financial situations into actionable advice, powered by Johnson Financial Group. On this episode, we will break down five listener calls that are all questions about investing and give you the best strategies to maximize your wealth in those specific situations. Today, my guest is Dominic Cece, Senior Vice President and Director of Portfolio Management and Trading for Johnson Financial Group. Dominic has over a decade of experience in this financial services industry. Dominic, thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for having me. So, Dominic, I know you deal with some very sophisticated portfolio strategies, but today we're looking for advice for callers who are just beginning their investment journey. So we have a number of them on the line. We're going to take our call from Chloe. Hey, Kelly. Um, so I just finished grad school and I finished my or started my first real job, I should say. Um, so I did decide to start my own 401k and I have a little bit of my own investment fund. So I look at myself as an own, my own investor now. But I don't know a lot about the market. So can you talk to me a little bit about what the difference between a bear and a bull market is? Thank you, Chloe. That's a great question. Um, what can you tell Chloe? Okay. Dominic? So this, this is a fun one. Um, well, first, congrats on finishing grad school, Chloe. And really great job enrolling in the 401k. That's a great way to get started investing, right? And hopefully you're taking full advantage of your employer's match if they have one. Um, if you don't know what that means, I would look into it or ask your advisor to help you out, right? Um, but but bear and bull market, so these are terms that are typically used to describe the direction of the market. And, and it can really be for any market. It's most commonly referred to in the stock market, right? So a bear market is a market that has a prolonged period of downward price momentum, right? And a bull market is the opposite, right? Prices are going up over some period of time. Now, the typical rule of thumb is that in a bear market, if the price is down 20% or more, you're in a bear market, right? And you can kind of say the same for the bull market, although it's not quite as clear, right? Some people say, well, you got to make a new high to be in a bull market. I wouldn't get too hung up on those rules if I was a beginning investor because they don't really matter, to be mm -hmm. honest, right? Um, I think what's more important is how you're feeling, right? Like, are you feeling bearish or bullish? Because that's going to dictate kind of what you do right? Or what you want to do. Um, so, you know, in, in a bull market, greed is kind of the dominant feeling. Everyone's winning. Everything's great. The value of your accounts is all going up. You, you can't do anything wrong, right? Like throw a dart, you pick something. It. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, in a bear market, it's the opposite, right? Like fear is the dominant emotion. And you're going to want to do things like sell everything or just anything. Like everyone's selling. I got to do something. Right. And that's probably the worst thing you can do in that moment. Right. So um, that's how I would kind of gauge it. You know, if, if you're at parties and people are talking about, oh, my stock portfolio is doing so great. Well, you're probably at the end of a bull market. Right. OK. <laughs> you know? So don't get excited yeah. and start to buy things. You know, if you're watching the financial news, I, I would just turn it off. But <laughs> if you are. Except and, for this podcast. You know, they, they tend to make everything feel like a bear market because that probably sells more advertising. But. You know, just gauge your emotions and, and however you're feeling that can kind of tell you how things are going. Because most people are probably feeling the same way, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of it. So um, I think, you know, just kind of interesting anecdote. Uh, I think the bear market terminology came first. And, and that it goes back to like the 1700s, right? In the streets of London, where you would have merchants that would, they would sell items that they didn't actually have. 
right? So, you know, people were actually trading bear skins and stuff, right? So they would sell, let's say they sold a bear skin. Well, they didn't have it. So they'd take the proceeds of the sale and then they would go buy the thing so that they could deliver it, right? And so there's this old proverb that, you know, it's not wise to sell the bear's skin before one has actually caught the bear. Um, That's where the bear market... I had never heard that before. From. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know, kind of fun... Trivia. Little, little for thing, yeah. <laughs> right. Financial trivia. Right. Because okay. that comes up so often, right? Great. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, so now we're going to take a call from Stephanie, who needs some help with some of these financial terms. Stephanie? Hi, Kelly. So I'm a little bit confused, and I just need some clarity. And this is mainly regarding the types of investments. So I'd like to know the difference between, you know, there's equities and what they call fixed income. There's things that are small cap versus large cap. You know, we have domestic versus international. Um, I believe there's active versus passive investing. Can you just go over what that all means? That's some complicated terms, Dominic. Yeah. Where should she start? So I start at the beginning of that question. The first part is the most important part to understand. All the rest of it's, you know, it's okay if you don't get it, but... Uh, the difference between equities and fixed income, if that's the only thing out of that question that you understand, I think you're doing pretty good, right? Okay. Um, and, and what those are, so equities, that's really kind of the fancy term that people use for stocks. And fixed income usually refers to bonds or some kind of loan, typically, right? Um, but when people talk about equities, the equity market, stocks, stock market, that's kind of all the same thing, right? The really important thing to understand is that Equity, when you buy equity, you are buying an ownership stake in a business, right? So if you buy shares of Apple, for example, you own a tiny little piece of that company. If you went out, and this is you know kind of the simplest sense, but if you went out and somehow wrangled up trillions of dollars to buy all of the shares of Apple, for example, you would own that company, the whole thing, right? And I don't think anyone has quite that much money to do that. <laughs> But, but that's the idea. That's the idea, <laughs> right? So it's really important to have that framework when you're investing because if, you know, if you think about instead of I'm buying this stock, I'm selling that stock, I'm buying this business and mm -hmm. I'm selling this business, I think it'll help you kind of keep a longer-term framework, right, which is really important in having success when you're investing. Um, now, on the other side of it, fixed income, those are essentially loans, right, or things that have, you know, interest attached to them. Fixed income is a lot more certain in a way. That's probably why they call it fixed. Right? Okay. okay. You know, like any loan, um, if you take a mortgage or anything, you know, a, a lot of people have experience on loans on the other side. They're getting a loan to buy a car. They're getting a loan to buy a house. Well, if you're investing in fixed income, you are the person making the loan. You get to play the role of the bank, okay. right? So, you know, you know the terms of the loan, right? You know how much money you gave, they usually come in increments of like a thousand bucks or five thousand bucks. So let's say you loan a thousand dollars. Well, you know that amount, mm -hmm. right? And you would expect at the end of the loan, which is a date that's known, that you get that back. And during the life of the loan, they're going to pay you some kind of interest, right? So all of those things with fixed income are very, they're known, right? They're kind of in some kind of contractual type of form. It's all known ahead of time. You really know what you're getting into. With equity, it's a lot kind of messier, right? So like, more risk, would you say? More or just... I think, well, yeah. So most people would define it as risk. Um, there's more variability because there's a lot more uncertainty, 
right? Okay. And so, yeah, uncertainty kind of gets defined as risk in our business, okay. um, which is why prices of equities move a lot because there are so many unknowns. Like you really don't know how long a business is going to be around. It's, you know, you don't know what the business prospects are going to be in year two, three, four, five. You know, it's hard enough to figure out what they're going to be this year. Right, <laughs> right. right. So um, that, that really all factors into the valuation of the equity, which is why you see the stock market fluctuates so much because a little change in an interest rate here or, you know, the, the economy there can impact the value of the business, right? Um, and that impacts the value of your equity, and then people kind of freak out because you know, these things trade like every second of every day and then you get this momentum and that's all the fear and stuff coming into the market. Um, and you just kind of got to put the blinders on and ignore that. But with fixed income, you don't, you know, it's much more known, right? And so those don't kind of move as emotionally, I think. As equities would. Yeah. As that market would. Yeah. And then large cap versus small cap. That gets confusing for a lot of folks. Yeah, so, so that's basically subclassifications of equities. And all that really means is, you know, forget about the cap. That means capitalization, market capitalization is what that's referring to. But really just large versus small. It just means big companies versus small companies, right? Um, so you've got companies that are literally worth trillions of dollars, and you've got companies that are worth millions of dollars, right? And the large companies are more closely followed, um, they get more news, right? There's a lot more coverage on them. If, you know, if these are stocks that trade, I mean, some of these companies have 50, 60 analysts that are digging around through their balance sheets. And some of these smaller companies don't have any analysts that are looking at them. So that kind of makes the transparency of what's happening with the company different between those two groups. Mm -hmm. That's why they're, they're different, right? In general, you still are owning businesses, but um, the large companies, every little thing that they say is known, right? Okay. Like there's not a lot of secrets there. Right. Um, with the with the small companies, though, you know, you kind of got to do your homework, and they tend to be more um, cyclical, right? They're a little bit more sensitive to the economy. Sometimes they're you know just getting started, or or maybe they don't have as many business lines, so the business itself is not that diversified. So they're really kind of anchored on just a handful of products, that kind of thing. So people would generally say that small companies, small cap companies are a little bit more risky than large cap companies, right? Makes sense, makes sense. And yeah. domestic versus international. And, and so that again is just a subclassification of, of really any investment, but typically equities is where you hear it the most. And that is just where the companies are located, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as US investors, we're typically talking about domestic companies, the Apple, Googles, Microsofts of the world, they're housed here in the US, you know, they. They pay U.S. taxes, all that kind of stuff. Most of their sales are in dollars, that kind of thing. Um, but then there's companies like, I don't know, Nestle is an example, okay. right? Sure. International company. It's overseas. I forget exactly where they're headquartered, but they play by whatever the rules of the country that they're in, you know, so kind of different sets of laws, different sets of tax regulations, that kind of thing, right? That makes sense. And active versus passive investing. Yeah, so this... <laughs> This can get a little complicated, okay. right? Um, so there's there's kind of the, um, just the investment level, right? You know, people will buy funds, mutual funds or ETFs, which are exchange traded funds. And those are baskets of investments, right? Okay. Usually if you buy one of those things, inside of them is 30 or more 
stocks or something, right? Could okay. be bonds, could be whatever. Um, and a lot of those track an index, right? And so if, if it's tracking an index, then there's no manager that's saying, oh, well, I like this thing and I like that thing. They're just going to go buy whatever the index is. That's a passive investment, right? Usually the expenses to run those are much lower because you're not paying for that active manager to go out and kind of do due diligence on these companies or these loans or whatever it is. They're just taking whatever the index has. That's what they take and they put into that thing, right? And for a new investor, an index would be, an example of an index would be? Like the S&P 500. Okay. Right? Probably the most common one that people would know. Okay. Um, on the bond side, it would be like the Barclays aggregate, right, is a really common index. So, you know, these are put out by index providers. They don't change very often, you know, usually once a year or so they get reconstituted. Um, and even when that happens, it's like maybe a handful of things change. They're pretty pretty static. And, and they usually just use some very basic rules to determine what is in the index, right? Um, for the S&P, you know, it's, it's essentially the biggest companies have the biggest weight, right? And then you've got to have some earnings and some other kind of things to prove that you're actually a reasonable company that, you know, does <laughs> business. Um, but beyond that, it's pretty straightforward, you know? So those indexes don't change a lot. And those index funds just track whatever's coming from some third party, right? On the flip side, active, you would have someone that says, well, I don't care that much about the index. I just want to put together the best basket that fits this characteristic that I'm looking for. Maybe they're looking at, I want the best return or I want the best yield or whatever it is. Um, and they're going to seek out, you know, this company, that company to fill up that basket. So they're doing some extra work to kind of weed out the stuff that they don't like and buy the stuff that they do like, right? So they are different than the index. Now, where it gets a little interesting is at the portfolio level, right? You can, you can have a whole portfolio that is made up of index or passive products, right? So you could use a whole bunch of index products and you could have an active portfolio, right? Because if, if your benchmark let's say the common benchmark is 60-40, right? The 60-40 portfolio is 60%, um, you know, an equity index, usually S&P 500 or something like that, and then 40% bond index, probably Barclays Aggregate. So you could take a whole bunch of passive products and do something different than the 60-40 and you would be active, right? So it, it, like if your overall positioning is different than that benchmark at your portfolio level level you're suddenly active you're an active investor got it but you're doing it with passive products that makes sense and that actually is a great lead in to this next question which is about diversification jake hi i just had my 35th birthday and i've been investing since college so i have a nice 401k and investment account I saw a few bumps during the pandemic, but I'm still doing great. I love equities, and I figured that's where the money is, so everything is in equities. My dad keeps telling me it's time to think about diversifying. What does that mean exactly, and what should I be thinking about? So dad wants him to diversify. What does that mean, Dominic? <laughs> so there's kind of two different types of diversification I would talk about here. I think this caller is invested entirely in stocks, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the first is, is pretty basic, and this is just the idea of not putting all your eggs in one basket, right? So you could own one stock, which is pretty risky, most people would consider, because if that one stock, as we talked about, 
ownership in a business, right. that business fails or is permanently impaired for some reason, maybe there's not that great a demand for their product anymore, whatever, you know, you are really just anchored on that one thing. You know, so kind of that first level of diversification is just within that asset class, within stocks for this caller. You should probably buy some more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, hopefully they've already done that. Most people, again, buy, you know, ETFs, funds. So those vehicles typically are diversified kind of under the hood, right? Okay. So they own 30 plus things. And, and that's usually what you see. The studies kind of show if you own 30 or more whatever stocks, that type of thing, you know, you, you tend to get... That's considered diversified? Yeah. Okay. Right. So you're diversified. You're not getting the individual risk of any one company, assuming you don't have, you know, like 90% in this thing and then a bunch of little pieces <laughs> of everything else. You know, they're kind of weighted somewhat evenly. Um, now, what his dad is probably talking about is diversifying at the portfolio level, um, you know, different asset classes. So we talked about uh, one of the earlier callers, the difference between equities and fixed income. Right. I'm guessing that's what his dad is getting at is, you know, hey, like go buy some bonds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Put a little bit of security or conservative yeah. approach within the portfolio. Is that what you think he's saying? I, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, you, you know, as we talked about with the bear markets, right, like there is um, there's fear that can drive specifically the stock market, right, any market, but mm -hmm. really stocks are very prone to this. People mm -hmm. get excited about it. They get over greedy. That drives the prices up probably beyond what they should be. Then fear comes in. Things go down pretty far, pretty fast. That's really hard to digest, right? And that's when people can make cognitive errors. You know, they sell at the bottom. They buy at the top, that kind of thing. And that really kills your returns long term. So if you add in an uncorrelated asset class like fixed income, then that helps smooth out the returns over time, right? It reduces the volatility in the portfolio. So, you know, and, and when I say uncorrelated asset class, I really mean um, an asset class that just behaves differently than the other stuff you already own, right? So, you know, in the simplest sense, you want something that goes up when the other stuff's going down. Okay, right? that makes sense. And now, you know, it's hard to find things that go, you know, are one for one in either direction, and, and that probably wouldn't work. Um, but you want correlations that are low, right? Like, okay. like stocks and bonds actually do have some positive correlation, and that tends to change over time depending on what's going on. We actually, unfortunately, saw this last year, right? Right, where both stocks and bonds really had a bad year. But that's not the common. That's what we not what we typically see when we have a right. That portfolio. was a, that was a pretty uncommon year, right? That was okay. very much an outlier. Um, usually, you know, if you're invested in in high quality bonds you know, in the, in the stock market's having a bad year, a lot of times those bonds will hold their value. And that goes back to some of those characteristics we talked about where you know the maturity date, you mm -hmm. know the interest rate, and if they're high quality, then, you know, they're high quality because those are pretty stable businesses and they're probably going to remain a going concern, aka not go out of business, right? Mm -hmm. So you can feel pretty good about them paying you back at the end of that loan, and so those values of those bonds don't really change that much. So a lot of times, you know, if you look back at some of these big crashes that have happened over time, um, equities took their whatever nosedive, you know, 20, 30 plus percent, but the bonds were fairly stable, right? You know, high quality treasuries, you know, um, AAA, AA, single A bonds, that kind of thing. Those hold their value usually, right? Or they, if they do go down, they don't go down a whole lot, you know? So that smooths out the ride and, and maybe mitigate some of that emotional response from experiencing too much volatility. Yeah. And, and that, so that's the key, right? That emotional response 
is the real risk. People talk about risks in the market and they talk about the market going up and down. That's not that, like that's really not that big of a deal, right? If you just looked at your statement once a year, you'd be fine. The risk is that you do something in response to that and that that's something that you do is the wrong thing to do and it puts you off track for achieving your goals, right? That's a great lead and in fact, we have another client, or another caller, excuse me, Elena, who has a question about you know, how to proceed, especially when she has some emotional responses to, to loss and to that risk. Elena, can we hear your question? Hi, Kelly. I started investing about three years ago and I have an advisor. I got panicked during the pandemic. I just wanted to get out of the market. My advisor said it was a bad idea, but I was so nervous. These ups and downs scare me. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Do I trust my instincts or my advisor? So that's kind of what you were talking about, Dominic, right? So yeah. give us some more insight about how to mitigate that emotional response. Yeah, so, you know, the short answer to your question is trust your advisor, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but th that pandemic market was crazy. Right. So I, I totally understand that feeling. I mean, even as a, a investment professional, you know, having studied all these things and, and been through whatever and had years and years of experience, that was not an easy market to sit there and just watch. Right. It was so fast. That was the thing that was unique about that one. I mean, you were down, you know, 20 plus percent, like in a couple of weeks, it was just fall off a cliff. It was intense. Right. right. And we were all so isolated because of that environment. You know, you didn't have kind of your, <clears throat> your buddies in the office. That you could go out and like, Oh man. Right. Kind of get some relief from just talk around the water cooler, whatever. So that was a really hard market. So I can totally understand if, if you're a newer investor and that was your first experience in a bear market, that's tough, right? Right, right. They're not all like that, <laughs> right? Thank goodness, yeah. right? Like it, it usually takes longer than that, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get these, there were days that I forget 12, 13% down in a day, you know, we we're hitting multiple circuit breakers, that kind of thing. That's not that normal, right? Um, so, you know, usually bear markets, like it's just kind of this prolonged, drawn out, you know, you're down a percent here, a percent there, and it just keeps going. You're like, oh my God, when's it going to end? So, it, you know, I think the emotion normally wouldn't be that intense. Right. Um, but I think the thing to understand is that um, the area of your brain, the areas of your brain that process financial loss are the same areas of your brain that process mortal danger. Right. Right. Like, well, that's extreme, right? Yeah, that, it's really extreme. But that's real. Like, right. that's real fear. This isn't, you know, a, a you problem. This is a human brain wiring problem, right? And so having that extra person to kind of gut check you and say, hold on, I understand why you're feeling this way because this is crazy, but we've got this plan and these are your goals and they have this time frame on them. And this thing that's happening here, you know, this week or whatever doesn't impact 30 years from now, which is what you're shooting for. And so, like, if you really need someone to bounce it off of, they can rerun your plan, whatever, and, and show you the numbers. Like, hey, if you made this change, right, your, your success probability on your plan now goes down to 40%. If you don't do anything, which is honestly in a bear market, a lot of times the best thing you can do is just nothing. Right. Like go do something else. Turn off the financial news and like hang out with your friends. Right. Hopefully your friends don't work in finance. <laughs> right. And, you know, 
stick with the plan and it's like, oh, well, if I do nothing, then my chances of success stay at whatever, 80%. Because most plans incorporate some level of volatility, right? I mean, that's factored in to this whole thing. So, but if you're selling at the bottom and freaking out and then, you know, you have to make a second decision of, okay, now I sold everything and I'm in cash. Well, when do I reinvest? Well, like we saw in 2020 in that pandemic market, the rebound off the bottom was just as intense as the as decline. The decline. Yeah, right. And so, you know, people that sold out at the bottom, they were still calling. Like we had a couple clients I remember at the time that I was dealing with, um, that people that worked for me that were dealing with that. You know, as, as much as we try to talk about the ledge, there's some people you just can't. And they were still looking to get back in in like November, whatever, and they missed that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's... A huge opportunity loss yeah, at that point. It really is. And, and missing those up days, those best up days in the market, can really impair your chance of success on your goals. So you said something interesting because you said the ultimate plan is what really should anchor us because it's that long-term projection that builds in that volatility. Mm-hmm. So... Even for a, a new investor um, like these folks, you would recommend start a plan. Is that accurate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Absolutely. not just about the investing. It's that long-term plan that they can look at. Yeah, because otherwise, what are you doing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like getting in your car and just driving nowhere. Right. Like, where are you going? You like, I'm just going to go drive around. Like, you, you know, you get Google Maps, and you're like, I'm going to go here. Well, that's the plan. The plan tells you where you're going. And so you always kind of have that anchor and maybe sometimes you'll get off on a side street, whatever. But, you know, you got to have that kind of X that you're moving towards those goals so that you keep things in focus and, and remember. Um, and so I'm actually going to shamelessly plug the podcast because you had an episode, I think it was about a month ago with Joe Meyer, right? And right. he did this whole thing on behavioral finance, which is a topic I love, right? right? And he did a great job, but he talked about all of these same things, but way more in depth than I am. Um, the behavioral aspects of things. And I think he actually gave a nice blueprint of how to pick an advisor. So if you're a newer, right, right. Newer investor and you're trying to figure out, well, what am I even looking for? I remember him telling you exactly what you should look for. I think right. he outlined three things, right? Exactly. exactly. And so you can go back, I want to say it was like August 3rd or something was when that one came out. Go back and listen to that. Well, he tells you how to pick someone, right? right. And he so tells you have you, that guidance. Yeah, and he gives you kind of this more in-depth idea of, hey, here's all these things in your brain that are saying, you know, this, this, that, and the other thing. And here's why you should kind of, you know, check right. that once in a while. And, and here's how to work around it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we have one more question. Um, and this one is coming to us from Jordan. Hi, I just paid off my student loans and it was rough, but I did it. And uh, now I think I should be putting that money, that payment to work every month. I'd like to invest, but I'm not sure where to start. Are there any places I can go, any books maybe that you could recommend that would give me some kind of basic information? So we gave him some nice basic information in this podcast, but are there other places for someone who's just dipping their toe into the investment world to, to get some information? Yeah, so, so obviously this podcast, right? Um, also on our GFG website, right, we have um, an insights blog that gets updated. I know with investment commentary, we do at least weekly, I think. And that's by various people that work you know, on the investment side, uh, including Brian Andrew, who you've had on here, who's our chief investment officer. So you can get really good commentary on just kind of what's going on. And I feel like those always have good perspective. Um, and then there's other things like Joe Meyer will write things um, that aren't so much about the markets per se, but just about investing and finance in general. So that insights blog is a really good resource. 
Um, but from a outside of JFG standpoint, I think if you're wanting to learn about investing, the first thing that comes to my mind is the book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, which is an investment classic. It started all kinds of things, right? Including, um, you know, it's one of the books that Warren Buffett points to as leading to his success. Um, it really led to like uh, the, the whole discipline of value investing came from that. I actually bought two copies of the book because I wanted to read it more than once, right? But it's a joke. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, but, but this book introduces Mr. Market, which is kind of the start of behavioral finance, right? It's the idea of this emotion that rolls through the market. And he introduces Mr. Market as this guy that's kind of this, you know, very emotional neighbor and is coming to your house offering to, you know, buy, buy your house on any given day. And, you know, the price is all over the place. So it's, it's a really good book. There's, it's, it's an old book, right? I forget when it was first published, but 50s, 60s. So some of the stuff in there is maybe a little dated, but I think the key takeaways are still valid today. And I know there's versions of that book that have additional commentary that have been added, like by Jason Zweig, who writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal. And so like after each chapter, there's a whole commentary from him that if you could only read one investment book, that's probably the one, right? Um, other books I would point to, right, would be like Business Adventures by John Brooks. This is another one that's, I think, a favorite of Warren Buffett. Bill Gates points to this book a lot on his kind of top lists. Uh, Business Adventures is, again, an older book. It's a series of essays written by this guy, John Brooks, that are about all kinds of sort of hijinks in business over the years, you know. Uh, the story of Xerox, the story of the Edsel that Ford Motors made, which was a total disaster, right? Uh, gets into the tax code. Uh, the nice thing about a book like that is you don't have to read it cover to cover. You can just kind of pick a chapter, and that's a condensed story. Um, and the reason I would point to that is because of what I said about equities, right? If you own equity, you own a piece of a business, and this would help you kind of understand what goes on in a business, right? And, and help you develop a business mindset, which if you're an investor, if you really want to be successful, you should have that business kind of mindset and outlook, right? Um, uh, another one I would throw out, I read a lot of books, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so more recent book is The Psychology of Money, right? This is a really, really, really good book. And we're just talking about some behavioral investing stuff and kind mm -hmm. of how emotion gets in the way. And this is a great, it's nice and it's fairly brief, so it's not a real long read. I thought it was a pretty easy read. Um, again, another one that you can kind of read a chapter and just get a lot out of that chapter. Um, but he gets into the, that nuance of how we really think about money, wealth, all of those things, and um, peels back those layers kind of on your brain and how that operates. So you know, if you can understand that and get out of your own way, you'll be way more successful than most people. Um, the last one I would point to is, I think, kind of, maybe this because I'm a finance nerd, right? But I think this is kind of more of a fun book, uh, is When Genius Failed by um, Roger Lowenstein. And this book is about the collapse of long-term capital management, which was a hedge fund that existed back you know, in the 90s, right? And this is essentially the story of the smartest people in the room, right? MIT degrees, that kind of thing, and how they massively failed as investors. And so I think this book is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's just an interesting story, right? But two, it, it kind of shows that investing is really hard, right? Having 
a whole bunch of letters after your name, degrees with, on top of degrees, being really good at math, doesn't mean that you can win in investing, right? And it, some of that goes back to that psychological factor, right? Right. Like, it's not just math. It's emotion. Mm-hmm. And you've got to kind of tackle that. And so it's really interesting to read that book. And I think some of the most interesting stuff is at the end where you find out, you know, about what happened after this whole thing collapsed. And um, so, uh, you know, that one's more of a fun, a fun read. And of course, you know, there's movies on the topic, right? Like The Big Short came out sometime in the last, I don't know, 10 years. Um, you know, that's a, mo- a movie that's based on a book by Michael Lewis. But if you don't feel like reading a bunch of really boring business books, you know, in two hours, you can get a little quick snippet of how complicated some of this stuff can be. I think anything like that, right, just to kind of get familiar with some of the language. And the big takeaway as a beginning investor is just to understand it's hard. Like some of these really sophisticated things that are hard to understand go wrong, right? Um, And, you know, if you can just learn some basic lessons from that, like invest in things that you understand. And if you can't understand it, probably better to stay away, right? Stuff like that. Those are, those are good general lessons to learn. You don't have to know all the nuance of small cap, large cap, you know, active, passive, all that stuff. Like your advisor is a great resource to help you with those things. You know, I, I would keep going back to that person. That's why it's pretty important to get them pegged down early on. You know, have the journey with them. Get someone you can trust. Use Joe's rules that he laid out in the podcast a month ago and find your right person. And then, you know, they'll take care of those kind of nuanced things with you and explain you along the way, but you just have to have this kind of common sense about business, investing, emotion, all of that to be successful. This has been great, Dominic. Thank you so much for being with us today and for all of your insight. And thank you to everyone who is listening to Your Money, Your Mission. If you have a question, you can simply go to the show notes and click on the link, type your question and hit submit. We'd love to hear from you. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes of Your Money, Your Mission, the podcast designed to turn complex financial situations into actionable advice, powered by Johnson Financial Group. This podcast is not a recommendation to buy or sell any investment or financial product. The caller questions and circumstances are hypothetical in nature. Whether a particular investment or financial solution is right for you depends on the facts of your particular situation. Please consult your own professional advisors prior to taking any action based on the content of this podcast. Wealth management services are provided through Johnson Bank and Johnson Wealth Inc., Johnson Financial Group Companies. Additional information about Johnson Wealth Inc., a registered investment advisor, and its investment advisor representatives is available at advisorinfo.sec.gov. Not FDIC insured, no bank guarantee, may lose value.